All right. Um, I better get there. Matthew 13. Um, we've been moving through, uh, this is kind of a hall of parables. I mean, we just, it's just been one parable after another that Jesus is taking us through. Um, we're going to continue uh, on that. Um, we're also going to continue to do something a little weird and odd, which is we're going to split the text um, once again. Um, and so you saw Brent do that uh, a couple weeks ago. You saw Chad do that. And now you're going to see me do that as we take the parable of the weeds. Um, this is one of the only parables in the Bible, along with like the sower, where we actually have an interpretation. And so we want to go ahead and give you the parable. And then we want to look at the interpretation. Um, so we're going to start off with Matthew 13, uh, 24 through 30, which says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and to gather them? And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. If you've noticed by now, throughout every parable here, um, there's a continuous subject. There is no subject that Christ talked about more in the entire Bible than this subject. This subject is the kingdom. The kingdom is the biggest subject that you will find Christ spending all of his time talking about. The reason is because the kingdom, the subject of the kingdom, is the banner over the top of everything else. Everything else is a result of the kingdom of God or heaven being a reality. So whether it is witnessing, or whether it is praying, or whether it is whatever you want to throw in there as a main subject, those are all sub-subjects under the heading of the kingdom. The kingdom is the biggest um, um, subject that we have. And if you notice, he says the kingdom of heaven, which is super interesting here, because when we think of heaven, we think of where? We, th we think of, of there. We, we think of up. We think of somewhere other than the world, the earth. But I want you to notice, as you look at each of these parables, that as he unpacks the kingdom of heaven is like, in these parables, they have to do with here. They have to do not with what's going on there, but what's going on here, on earth. Which means, the kingdom of heaven is present. It is present. I know that's controversial. I know a lot of people go different directions with this, but I think that we could spend all day looking at all the reasons, the things that Jesus said to make us think that. These parables together collectively are one of them. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he's unpacking something that's going on here and now on earth. That's pretty interesting. So basically what we have, when you think of the kingdom of heaven, you can think of it this way. Um, there, there is a kingdom that exists elsewhere, but it is sovereign in its rule and authority over everything that exists. So wherever it's doing something, it's its kingdom. 
That is its domain and its region. So we've got, we've got counsel going on. We've got plans going on in this heavenly realm, but they're affecting here because he owns it. <laughs> this is his. So I don't want to start off confusing you, but I just want you to understand, a lot of times when we think of the kingdom of heaven, we, th- we think of this other worldly thing. And I want, you, I want you to notice that he's talking about things that, are, that have to do with you and me and the world that we live in. This is interesting. So kingdom of heaven. Um, let's go straight to the interpretation. Let's not even play with this since we have an interpretation that he gives us. It's super convenient. Down verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. Isn't this nice? You know what? Like, this is nice. This is super helpful. I wish that, like, everything that we have, I I wish our apocalyptic writings in the Bible, like, did this. Right? This is this. That is that. Go home and sleep well. You don't have to guess or argue over anything anymore, right? This is like super helpful that he does this with this parable. He goes on, the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. And he will throw them into the fiery furnace And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. You all got one of these, right? Touch it. Just, there you go. Touch that thing. Make sure it's there. Um, What we have here is we have a, a, a heavenly perspective, heavenly insight into what this world is all about and what's really going on, what's really going on around us. This is called a worldview. It is very helpful for a Christian to have a biblical worldview. Everybody has one. Even people that think they don't have one has one. Everyone is raised with one. Everybody has a worldview. And this worldview is this lens that is this thing that we look through to interpret everything going on in the world around us. This is really what we're being given here. By, by Jesus in this parable. And this is super helpful because it answers some of the big questions that people often have, like why in the world are we here? What are we doing here? What is life all about? Why does time and history just keep rolling on and on and on? What happens next? What happens after this? I mean, Jesus kind of gives us insight into um, to all of this. Like, like right now, it could be really easy for us to look around this place on earth, and say, where is God? Why is he absent? Why isn't he doing something? Right? How is it possible for a good God to allow evil to exist? I, I, I hear that one all the time. It's a good question. Or, or, or if Jesus has come and the kingdom with him, why isn't the world a better place? This is a valid question. This is a legit concern. 
This parable helps us to answer that question, and I thank God for that, because we live in a world where 200,000 abortions happen every day. We live in a world where an act of domestic violence takes place every nine seconds. We live in a world where I can't tell a guy from a, a girl anymore, and if I get it wrong, I'm the bad guy. We live in a world where mass shootings have become the trendy way to go out, take as many innocent people with you as you possibly can. We live in a world where you can't trust any major presidential candidate, no matter which side of the aisle they sit on, because they've already slept with one form of corruption in their past or in their present. We live in a world where we can't get any straight, simple facts about any current event because everything is being spun and perverted and distorted to, per, to, to promote personal narratives. It's dark, people. This world is dark, and it's on a trajectory taking it into darker and darker territory. Don't even get me started about the state of music and movies. Hasn't been good since the 80s. And, and I mean, I know, like... All right, all right. In all fairness, some of the worst stuff came out in the 80s, but also some of the best, right? <laughs> all of this is on full display in front of us every day, and the church is heralding rejoice for Christ has come. Rejoice for the kingdom of God has come upon us, and people are going, seriously? Like, look around you. We look pretty stupid with our message. How do you explain all this if you're right, Christian? And a primary part of our answer must be, there are weeds in the wheat field. There are weeds in the wheat field. The weeds are growing with the wheat. The bad seed is mingled with the good seed. This is a partial answer to the current problem of evil in the world. And it is the knowledge of this that helps me to continue to trust him rather than lose my stuff. You know what I mean? Like, like it's the knowledge of this, like in this parable, that give, that these kingdom truths that I need to be able to hope ahead rather than fall apart today. And, and, and so it is with that that I, I want us to focus primarily, we can go all kinds of directions with a parable like this. Um, what I want us to do is focus primarily on four things that we can know about God, according to this parable, that we can know for certain about this God that we serve and we trust and we follow and we hope in and we put our faith in. Number one, this parable tells us that Jesus is a more sovereign king than we might expect. You're like, where is it? Everywhere. Everywhere. It's throughout this entire parable. The main character is a master, an owner, an authority over a field. And we all know what the field is because it was nice enough to tell us. The world. The world. This is of utmost importance for us to see and believe because it can easily seem that Satan's in charge of this world that we live in and God is absent or indifferent. And it's not true. It can seem as though the field is out of control, literally out of control. And this assessment would simply be false if you look at this parable. 
We can be assured by this parable of the master's sovereignty in the fact that he owns the field. We're told that in verse 38 is the world. So, so he doesn't just own the church. He doesn't just own a believer. He doesn't just own little children or babies. God owns everything. It's all his. Every bit. Therefore, we know that God is not perplexed and he is not challenged or surprised or left scrambling to figure out a plan B when the weeds came into the field. He knew exactly what he was doing. The truth is he never ceases to be sovereign no matter how bad something may look or be. Sovereign simply means someone who rules or reigns supreme. That's what sovereignty is. Efficacious. You guys know what that wonderful word means? What does it sound like? Effective. Effective. It's someone who's able to produce a sure and desired result. A sure and desired result. That's effectual. That's efficacious. A guy named Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch of that which exists in which Jesus does not cry out, it is mine. It is mine. It all belongs to Christ. He is the sovereign creator of it, and he is the sovereign owner of it. Even when it looks like it can't possibly be, it is his. Every bit of it. If this is true, if every square inch is his, what does it mean that this enemy came in and sowed bad seed in the midst of his good seed? It means simply in his sovereignty that he allowed it to be so. That's what it means. He allowed it to be so. His guys were sleeping, not him, in the parable. He's wide awake. He knows what's going on, right? This is where some people want off the bus. I know we're, we're treading into some weird territory right here. A few of you might be uncomfortable. You'll be all right, though. You'll be fine. We might say things to ourselves like, oh, surely he would never approve of this world leader or this president or this law or this piece of legislation or this sin that's getting ever increasingly evil and celebrated. There's no way he would do that. And all I can say is he is reigning, ruling, supreme, and sovereign over all that is all the time, period. That's the God that we find in our Bible. All the time. He has the power to stop what he will in this world, in this field that is his. And he has the right to allow what he will in his field. I know that's a hard one to swallow. This is deep. This is heavy. I get it. Every square inch is his, meaning he controls every square inch of it. And by the way, I am not in any way saying that God is the author of sin. He is not. You and I did that all on our own, way back, our first parents, in the garden. And once they fell, that became part of our DNA. It runs now in the bloodstream to you and to me and to everybody exists that, that exists. But because sin does exist and God owns everything, he has the right to tell it what to do. He has the right to direct it. So God uses sin sinlessly 
in this world to accomplish his greatest good. Does this make sense? This is also biblical. It exists, so he uses it to his good. It doesn't make him responsible for it. It just makes him bigger than it. And it's already there. Okay. We're doing good then so far. The master remains sovereign and fully in control of this entire situation that's put before us here in this parable. He's in speaking of himself. The field never ceases to be his. The progression of that field never ceases to be his. The final outcome of that field never ceases to be his. He never ceases to be sovereign over the field and over all that is found in the field. I want us to notice, obviously, there are two types of seed here in this field. That's it. There's not three options or four options or some kind of hybrid seed. It's just good seed and bad seed. Those are the two categories. Well, how do I know which which seed I am? Well, it's actually quite simple. If you trust in and follow Jesus, you're good seed. If you don't, then you're not. That's just kind of the way it works. If you do not trust in and follow Jesus, you're bad seed. Now, I want us to notice that the master, which is Jesus, planted good seed. Good seed. In other words, this seed at no time decided to become good seed. This is going to get weirder. Just hang with me. It never ceased to become good seed, even after the bad seed was thrown and sown with it, right? This is why we are what we are. That's what this is. This is why you and I who believe in Christ, who trust and follow him, are what we are. We came out of the good seed bag. Sounds wrong, doesn't it? The sovereign reality of God's uh, of God's is spoken of and hinted at throughout all the teachings of Jesus. Are you guys familiar with John chapter 10? Don't go there. Um, you can go there later. Mark it down. Let me read this to you. I'm sure you are. This truth of why we are what we are is actually throughout the Bible. It's throughout the teachings of Christ. No better place maybe that it's found than in John 10. Listen to this. And it's funny how we just read over things like this without even paying attention to the weight of what's actually being communicated to us. In verse 22 of John 10, we have again these Jewish religious leaders come up to Jesus and they're, you know, poking at him and being dumb. Um, And it says, at the time of the Feast of Dedication that it took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, and the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us? In suspense. This is ridiculous. Well, I mean, we do know the kind of stuff that Jesus was doing in public, right? It's ridiculous. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them and said, I told you. I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. You ready? Here's the why. Because you are not among my sheep. He's giving them the reason why they don't believe, why they don't look at him and go, you're the Christ. Because they're not one of his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, he goes on to say, and I know them, 
and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mean, this is, this is pretty heavy stuff. Here's what Jesus is saying. We are not his sheep because we believed. We believed because we are his sheep. You can't say it any clearer than that. So we like to get the cart before the horse and do one of these. Like, I made, I made the good decision. I went from bad to good. No, no. God in his sovereign right over the field and everything in the field is responsible for anything good that comes out of you. If Christ is in you, glory be to Christ. You are not smart enough. You are not good enough to decide to be good. We need someone sovereign to make us good to do that which we cannot do for ourselves. And Jesus does this. There are good seed, and there are bad seed in this field around us, probably even in this church. There are sheep, and there are non-sheep. There are those who will never be sheep in this world around us, probably even in this church. He knows we do not, but the prerogative is his because he's the sovereign master over the field. We good? You guys are like, no. It's the crickets. Thank you. That was awesome. Thanks for that feedback. Let's keep going. What this means is that Jesus is a more sovereign king than we might expect on multiple levels. We get this in this parable. Number two, this parable tells us Jesus is a more patient king than we might expect. He's a, he's a lot more patient than you and I. If I was running this deal and an enemy came in and threw those weeds in my wheat patch, like I'd be doing something right? And it probably wouldn't turn out good. He's a more patient king than we might expect. We find this in verses 28 through 30, right? Um, I I don't think you and I ever would have written this Christian thing up this way. Um, I I, I know I wouldn't have. And and I thought when I was a young Christian, my my tactic was that I was just going to hide in the church with nothing but believers for the rest of my life until God, you know, raptures me home. It doesn't work that way, not to mention that's completely unbiblical. That's completely not Christ-like, right? But that's probably the way that I would have done it. You know, you and I probably would have never have expected sowing and growing and a progression of an eternal godly kingdom in the midst of a current evil world. But that's the way he's doing it. This is how he's choosing in his sovereignty to purge this thing. He's going to wait it out. You and I expect a finality and an end, not a process. But Jesus is content for whatever reason with a process, a growth, a build, a patience, culminating in a glorious end. And praise God that he does, because if he would have reaped that field a thousand years ago, where would you be? You know what I'm saying? Like, where would I be? You know, when we look around at a world like this, we should it would be weird for us as believers to not cry out in our hearts, Maranatha, which means God, come quickly. Come quickly. Like that's my natural response when I see the darkness getting darker around me. But every day that God chooses not to is another day when wheat is coming in and sheep are coming in to his fold. God has a ledger He has a ledger. There's a roll call that's going to go down in eternity one day. 
and then the books will be closed. But he's going to wait until every single name in that ledger is present. He's going to wait until every single voice from each of those names cries out, here, here, I'm here, right? And so he is patient. So he waits. And so we need to thank him and we need to praise him every day that he does not return. And we need to be busy in his field, which is a whole other sermon. It's not this one. All right. Cool. Where are we? The reason that he doesn't allow his servants, which are reapers, angels, according to the interpretation, just run into the field and pull the wheat as soon as, or the weeds as soon as they discovered that someone had put them there is because there was a certain kind of weed at that time that was common that grew in wheat fields. And wouldn't you know it, it looked like wheat. It looked like wheat until wheat reached full maturity. So you had to let it grow to tell the difference of what to pick. This thing is called a darnel. It's a weedy, dry grass. And not only did it look a lot like wheat until wheat grew to full maturity, but the roots, yes, like it, is, it says here, like to grab onto every other root that's around it and not let go. All right? And that would be dangerous if you're trying to protect the wheat, just like it says. So they were almost indistinguishable as they were growing in the field. Um, praise be to God that the master of the field is not into making mistakes, that he's not into losing any wheat, which means that he's a more patient king than you and I expect. Think about this. Next time you get frustrated and you think, God, what are you doing? When are you going to put a stop to this? Consider his patience, his long-suffering. Believe me, he hates sin more than you do. And he sees a lot more of what's going on than you do. Consider that. And yet he stays his hand. I don't, it's amazing. This brings us to number three. This parable tells us Jesus is a more just king than we might expect. He is a more just king. He's not indifferent. He's not asleep. He's not on vacation right now. He is taking notes. There are other books. You know what I'm saying? And those books are full. He's not missing anything. He is a more just king than we might expect. And because of that, hell is real. Condemnation is real. The judgment is real. Yeah, we're one of those churches. We're, we're that prehistoric that we believe in hell still. I, I mean, he's ta he talks about it. You know what I mean? And he's probably right. You know? You know what I'm saying? Like, Jesus is probably right on things like this. A price for punishment for sin is real. The conscious horror of hell is real. The er eternality. Check that out. You didn't think I could do it. I almost botched it. The eternality of hell is real. The permanent reality of hell is real. And it is real because God really loves righteousness and really hates sin. You and I think we do. But because we're not fully righteous, we have a very weak hate for sin. God has a very real 
hate for sin. He knows exactly how bad it is because he is perfectly righteous. He knows exactly what that should look like. So sin and all who are found in sin will be punished and justice will be served, which means that nobody's going to get away with nothing. This is very important for you and I. Because as the world gets darker, it's easy for us as Christians, not in our righteousness, but in our self-righteousness, thinking that we're doing the right thing, to kick back against it, to get out our torches and our pitchforks and storm the Capitol, you know? No, that's not ours. That's not ours, right? Jesus assures us here yet again that hell is real. He assures us that it's really bad, um, and people are still going to laugh when they hear us talk about this. Uh, They're going to scoff. They're going to make fun of hell. They're going to make light of hell. They're going to tell hell jokes. You know what I mean? Um, But they're going to do it because they either don't think that it will be that bad or because they don't think it's really a thing because it never seems to show up, right? Like really bad people get to get up the next morning and have a cup of coffee and smile and laugh and experience something good. Nothing ever seems to happen, but it's coming. They might not think that it's really a thing because evil and injustice just seem to roll on and on and judgment never seems to make an appearance. Jesus never seems to show up, bring in the hurt, but it's coming. His second advent, people, is going to be extremely different from his first advent. Gentle lamb, roaring lion, right? It's going to be different. Look at 41 and 42 again. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. They will do this. And throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are many people, even in the church, who have a major problem with the doctrine of hell these days because it's, it's really hard for us to imagine why. Like, how can that possibly be? What, what, like, how can it be when this place is going to be so bad? Why does it have to be so severe? Why does it have to be so permanent? And again, it's because hell is, or sin is much worse than we think it is. It's much worse than we think it is. We play it down and we grade it on a curve because we have no true concept of righteousness. But God's going to set everything straight when he comes. And when he does, no one's going to be going like, gee, Lord, like, like lighten up a little bit. That's a little bit strong, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like we do that now when we, when we imagine this. But that day when it happens and he takes the weeds and he burns them outside the field and he gathers his wheat into his barns and he sets everything straight, some to the left, some to the right, nobody is going to sit there and go, gosh, man, like, Lighten up a bit. Uh, Every single one of us are going to be crying out to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever is yours. Forever and ever. Because Jesus is a more just king than we might have thought. Finally, um, the final thing that we see in this parable is that Jesus is a more liberating king than we might have thought verse 43 tells us that then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father this is amazing to think about people i don't know how pressed you are i don't know what you've gone through i don't know what you're going through currently i don't know what you will go through tomorrow or next week but it'll probably be something because that's the kind of world field that we live in right now and it's not going to be fun 
And so you need to know this. Your worldview needs to have this in its crosshairs. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. It's coming. See, Jesus isn't just saving us from hell. He's saving us to glory. That's pretty rad. He's not just saving us from something. He's saving us to something. You and I are not only destined to that which we do not deserve, we are destined to that which was once contrary to us. This is radical to think about, right? Like righteousness, like Christ-likeness, the full representation of the glory of God will be our reality. Paul says, for we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Hallelujah. I'm ready. I need, I need some new stuff. I really do. Starting with my brain. You know, I just need some new stuff. And you do too. We will be purged, we will be perfected, resembling fully once for all the glory of the Son. Why? Because Jesus is a more liberating king than we might expect. All right, closing thoughts. Three of them, real quick. The kids are getting restless. Number one, God knows precisely who the weeds are and who the weed is. Okay? Which means that our job is to go out and throw seed, the seed of the gospel, Everywhere, to every single creature that God puts in front of us. It is not our job to know who's good seed and who's bad seed and who's sheep and who's goats. That is God's business, not yours and not mine. And so we offer the good news of the gospel of the kingdom to every creature that we possibly can. Okay? All right. That's number one. Number two, your fight is not to fight right now. My goodness, I don't know what's happened to us as a people of God, as kingdom citizens of another kingdom, not this one. We have forgotten that. We live as though this is it. It's not our fight to fight right now. Please don't hate me for this. I, I, I am saying this because I love you. And I want you to understand what the perfect will of God is, as is written in his word. And some of us have simply just started looking in the wrong place and calling it a God thing. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, which means it's not yours. It's not yours. Too many Christians are fighting the wrong fight. Satan is pulling the wool over our eyes and deceiving us. He's saying, look over here. This is where the trick is happening, and we're all looking while he does this thing over here. And we need to wake up. Stop fighting to make the weeds wheat by pressing them to abide in your nationalistic morals and ideologies. Stop trying to save America Stop trying to save your constitution. 
Stop worshiping the flag and your guns and your rights as if those things are the same as an incarnated Savior in a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Because they are not. And it's killing our testimony. You think you're doing right. Christianity outlived the Roman Empire and it will outlive America. I promise you. Your kingdom is not here. You should say thank you, Lord, that you were able to be birthed into a country like this. You should give the gift giver all praise and thanks and glory that you got that gift. But do not mistake the gift with the gift giver. All glory is to God. His kingdom is a lasting one. It is a perfect one. There's not going to be any bad laws going down. There's not going to be any bad elections going down. There's not going to be anything that troubles us and we lose sleep over right now. He's going to fix it all. This is why you and I need to get out and share the real gospel of the real kingdom with other people around us. Stop trying to Christianize something that is a weed field. Does that make sense? My phone, my card's in the back, all right? (laughs) Seriously. I'm serious. I know this is tough. Look, I I love my country. If God would have opened up a map, you know what I'm saying, like pre-birth, and been like, all right, David, where do you want to go? I would have been like, boom, like right there, right? Don't get me wrong. I am not a communist. I am not a Marxist. I am not a socialist. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with you and I having our heads screwed on straight about which kingdom we actually belong to. That's all, that's all I'm getting at. Because it's killing our testimony. It's, a, it's an idol. It's become a false idol for Christians to just want to go back to the good old days. We just want to go back to the good old days where we were Christianized. I have news for you. Like, we weren't. We had people that thought they were sheep that weren't, and people that thought they were good seed that weren't, because we all just acted like we were this, this one thing, all abiding by the same morals and standards and lifestyles, and, and it fooled a lot of people. A lot of people never knew Jesus. All right, I need to get off this. You know I do. You know I need to get off this. All right. Um, fight. Fight the right. Know this. Vengeance is his. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's, he's got, and he's keeping track of all of it. I promise you that he takes really good notes. He's not, he's not missing any of the garbage, the horrific atrocities that are going on in this world. He's not missing any of them. And he's going to deal with all of them. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with the way that he's going to deal with them? Number three, finally, the evils of this life are for a moment. They're for a moment. And then people, glory, glory. Remember that. They're for a moment. Do not fret at this life. Do not be overcome with this life. Do not despair at this life. Do not be utterly overwhelmed with this life. Your sinless king and kingdom awaits you. It is just up ahead for you and for me. Hallelujah. A glorious king and kingdom awaits us shortly. The kingdom awaiting those who love Jesus is far superior to this one in every conceivable way. There will be no sin. There will be no blemish. None will be allowed to exist there. And so we contend for the realities of the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdoms of earth. 
I love this quote. I have it on my office. It's right above my desk so I can see it every single day because it helps me get through every single day and every time that life throws me a curveball. And uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's by a guy named Robert Murray that says, do you mourn over bodily pain and poverty and sickness and the troubles of the world? Do not murmur. The time is short. If you have believed in Christ, these are all the hell that you will ever bear. Do you understand that? In other words, whatever it is that you're going through now is as bad as it will ever get for you. And then glory. Eternity. With our perfect king and a perfect kingdom forever. Lord, thank you for parables. Thank you for hard sayings. I I pray, Lord, that I am right in some of what I've communicated and how I've done it, God. If I'm not, forgive me. And help my people to, your people, to not remember it, whatever the garbage is. But I do pray that we would be serious about you, more serious than ever before. That we would call an idol an idol. And that you would calibrate our hearts and minds towards that which is just up ahead. I pray that we would fall more and more in love with you every day. You. And your word. So that we may become more like you. And I ask it in your name. Amen.